Our text from the Word of God this morning is from the middle of the seven letters to the churches of Asia in Revelation 2 and 3. Number four of the seven, beginning at verse 18 of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Theatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Theatira was a prosperous manufacturing and trading town, but was otherwise a lesser place than the other cities to which the letters of uh, Revelation 2 and 3 were sent. It was not a seat of government, was not a center of imperial worship. The longest and the most difficult of the seven letters is addressed to the least known, least important, and least remarkable of the cities. You can take some comfort from that, I think, those of you who live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, who don't live in Washington or in London. God knows of you and cares for you as well. We know there were trade guilds or business associations in Theatira mentioned in inscriptions from the period are wool workers, linen workers, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and so on. Lydia, the first of Paul's converts in Philippi, was from Theatira, perhaps was the Philippi representative of a purple cloth guild from her hometown. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. The woman's name was not Jezebel, of course. That's uh, John's description of her life and teaching, Jezebel being, as you remember, the pagan queen of Israel, the wife of King Ahab, who did so much to encourage idolatry and other pagan practices in Israel. This woman, who apparently was a prominent member of the congregation, laid claim to some sort of prophetic gift and had led other people in the church to embrace her views. It was John's role to play Elijah to this Jezebel, and in verse 23, he will say, in effect, if you like beds so much, I'll put you in one. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. Perhaps John had rebuked this woman on one occasion or another and pointed out the error of her teaching, but if so, that rebuke had made no impression on her. The fact that punishment does not immediately overtake sinners is very often, if not almost universally understood by them, 
to mean that it will never overtake them. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Theatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. The citation, as you remember, is from Psalm chapter 2 and applies to the Messiah. The Lord is saying that the authority he himself has been given over the nations, he is going to share with his followers. What that means is very hard to know, that Christians will participate in God's and Christ's judgment of the nations, that they will rule in the world to come, is said elsewhere in the Bible, but precisely what that means, how that will happen, what we will do, is never explained. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Our Father in heaven, we have a text before us with a theme that is receiving very little attention in our time. Lord, that write this truth upon our hearts, for it should make an extraordinary difference in our lives. That it may be so, O God, we attend now to your holy word. Help us. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Wise men have long suspected that each of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 has a particular theme, some characteristic of the faithful Christian life. The theme of the first letter, that to Ephesus, is love. The second, suffering. The third, truth. The fifth, sincerity or integrity. The sixth, mission. And the seventh, zeal. The letter we have read, the fourth, has a theme that appears to be holiness. We are called to live holy lives, lives of obedience to God's commandments, lives of purity and honesty, virtue and love. Lives that adorn the gospel and the reputation of our Savior. And as is the case with the other letters, the emphasis falls on the eternal consequence of the lives that we live in this world. It is the eternal consequence that lays great emphasis on the importance of our obedience now. Some of you may remember, if only vaguely, the opening ceremonies of the Sydney Olympics in the year 2000. I saw just a few minutes of them myself, but in the providence of God, they included the blazoning of the word eternity in bright lights in that stadium before the 120,000 spectators and the hundreds of millions of people who are watching around the world on television. Bob Costas, the NBC commentator, explained that the word eternity is a famous part of the local history of Sydney, Australia. 
but he didn't have time or interest in telling the entire story. It seems there was a ne'er-do-well named Arthur Stace, the drunkard son of drunkard parents. He was born in 1884 and was a little man, five feet three inches tall, weighing scarcely a hundred pounds. He was arrested repeatedly from the age of 15. He was sent to the First World War and was gassed, and as a result lost most of the vision in one eye. Once back home, he returned to drink and to a life of petty crime until in August of 1930, he found himself in a city mission where he hoped to find some food. It was the Depression, and things were so bad that men like Arthur Stace were willing to endure an hour of preaching in order to receive their tea and cakes. That meeting changed Arthur Stace's life. Christ found him there. He became Christ's follower. He stopped drinking. He got a decent job. Some months later, he heard an evangelist speak at his church. He heard the man say, I wish I could shout eternity through the streets of Sydney. According to Stace, the preacher repeated himself and kept shouting, eternity, eternity. And his words were ringing through my brain as I left church. Suddenly, I began to cry, and I felt a powerful call from the Lord to write eternity. I had a piece of chalk in my pocket and I bent down there and wrote it on the pavement. That was more interesting than it might seem, for Arthur Stace was illiterate, and what little he could write, his own name, for example, he wrote in virtually illegible handwriting. He would later say that he believed the Lord had given him a special ability to write that one word, eternity. For this word alone, Stace had a unique kind of copper plate handwriting. It looked almost like engraved script. For years thereafter, Arthur Stace would rise early, usually before dawn, and wander through the streets of Sydney, a different part of the city, every morning. He dressed formally in a gray felt hat, tie, double-breasted navy blue suit, and as he walked, every so often he would stop pull out his piece of chalk, bend down, and write the word eternity on the sidewalk. He would move on a hundred yards or so and write it again. People would awake in the morning and find when they stepped out of their homes or as they approached their place of work, eternity written in chalk on the sidewalk. Always in a different place. No one ever saw it being written. For years, no one knew who was doing this, but Stace was discovered in 1956, a quarter century later, when his own minister caught him at it. By that time, it had become a feature of Sidney's life. Sooner or later, almost everyone had seen the word eternity as he or she walked the streets of Sydney, Australia. For 37 years, Arthur Stace did this, and so it is calculated in that time, he wrote the word more than half a million times. It was graffiti, to be sure, 
but in chalk that would disappear in the rain and with the best possible motive to remind people what was coming, to remind them what their lives meant and what they needed to think about and do. So distinctive was Stace's script that in 2001, the Council of the City of Sydney was granted a trademark on the script to protect it from unauthorized commercial use. When Florence and I visited Australia some years ago, we made it a point to visit the waterfall in Sydney Square Park, where in the paving, you can see the word eternity in Arthur Stace's hand, now gleaming in wrought aluminum. Simple, faithful Arthur Stace wanted people to think about the meaning of their lives and how the, that meaning was determined first by not was what was happening to them at the moment or what even they were doing at the moment, but what would happen to them in the world to come, in the next world. Alas, eternity has now been incorporated into the spiritual stupor of modern Australia. It was illuminated on a sign on the Sydney Harbour Bridge during the New Year's celebrations in 2000, was emblazoned in bright lights in the opening ceremonies of the Olympics that same year, beamed throughout the world. Imagine, eternity has been turned into a commercial trademark, the perfect illustration of the Philistinism of modern Western culture and the insensibility of most human hearts to the single greatest fact of their existence, that their life in this world is preparation for their life in the next. It is the first and most sacred obligation of a Christian minister always, constantly, emphatically, with reason, and argument and strong emotion to collect, to connect your lives, what you are thinking and what you are saying and what you are doing today and tomorrow and the next day with eternity. And nothing should make that connection more obvious or more important to you than verse 23 of the Lord's letter to the church in Theatira. Verse 23 is the middle sentence of the middle letter of the seven letters, and it is the only sentence in all seven letters that is addressed to all the churches together. That is how John indicates that this is his theme, the central emphatic theme of all seven letters. As vital as it is for unbelievers to contemplate eternity, it is essential that Christians do the same as well. They too will be judged. Indeed, this eternal perspective, this prospect of a divine judgment of our lives, the lives of believers is a hallmark of John's revelation as it is a hallmark of the epistles of the Apostle Paul. At the end of Revelation in chapter 20, we read again of the books being opened, the dead being judged according to what they have done. All the dead, the unbelieving dead and the believing dead alike. Your life will be reviewed 
in the last judgment, my life, and you will receive what is due you for what you have done, good or bad. We read that from the Apostle Paul himself, the champion of justification by faith alone in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And so the Bible says repeatedly, more often, I suspect, than any of you thinks. We need more Arthur Stases because this is not a biblical teaching to which much attention is being paid in our time. Clear as it is taught in the Bible, clearly as it is taught in the Bible, emphatically as the Bible warns us of this ahead of time, I suspect there are a great many Christians in evangelical churches in America today who have never once heard a sermon warning them that Christians though they be, forgiven though they be, they will in some form or fashion have to answer for their sins as they will in some form or fashion be rewarded for their obedience, for their faithfulness to God, for the sacrifices they made for the sake of their holiness and Christ's honor in their lives. We know the gospel. We know that we have sinned and that the Savior has suffered. We know that by faith in Jesus Christ, we have life and have it to the full. But the same Bible and the same authors of the Bible teach us that our lives matter. How we live them matters, not just for time, but for eternity. There are some, the Apostle Paul, who will receive, says, who will receive a great reward, and there are some whose work will be burned up. They will be saved, but as through fire. Do you really realize how profoundly and how uniquely our Christian faith is eschatological? Don't think of scenarios. Don't think of the millennium. Don't think of those things that Christians have found reason to argue about, argue about for the last 2,000 years. Think instead of how fundamentally eschatological our faith is. Everything depends on the end, on the consummation of history at the second coming, on the last judgment. The past and the present gain their significance from the fact that they are part of a story that has an ending and that their significance absolutely depends upon how that story ends in their individual particular case. Your life today is what it is. It means what it means because of how it will be judged on the great day. Eternity eschatology. That's what hardly anybody is thinking about today. And yet it's writ large over God's word and all that he has to tell us about our living in this world. No wonder we are asleep, you and I, so much of the time. No wonder we are so blithely self-satisfied, content with our lives the lives we are living when any serious thinking would reveal immediately the chasm that separates what we are and what we do from what a Christian ought to be and what a Christian ought to do. 
No wonder if we never think about the difference this must make. No wonder if we never imagine ourselves standing before the great white throne to give an account of the deeds done in the body, good and bad. In our frivolous day, the prospect of divine judgment simply does not loom over us as it once did. People don't speak of fearing the Lord in the way the Bible urges us to think and to speak. The Bible describes that fear as an essential component of true holiness of life, living faith in Christ. How many of us, how much of the time, are working out our salvation with fear and trembling? How many of us can remember the last time we said, as the Apostle Paul said, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men? The Christian contemplation of the last judgment and our place in that judgment as those who likewise must give an account simply sounds depressing to the modern ear. We want easier, happier thoughts. But that truth, that contemplation has always actually been deeply helpful, much more helpful, more stirring, more galvanizing in fact, than the light and easy way of the modern therapeutic approach to the Christian life when all seems directed toward our happiness rather than our holiness. We have only one life to live in this world, only one life that we shall ever live by faith. Time flies by, eternity awaits. Nothing short of that truth will get us up and doing, make us hunger and thirst for righteousness, and make us willing to make those sacrifices that a holy life requires day after day. Nothing but the prospect of eternity will stir us to live that life we are going to want so much to have lived when, when that great day is upon us. It often shocks me to realize that I am now 72 years of age. I still find my think, myself thinking that somebody who is 50 must be older than I. But my life is far, far nearer the end than it is the beginning. I find myself so often thinking about what might have been, what should have been. What Benjamin Disraeli, the 19th century British prime minister, once wrote about himself seems far too much to me a description of my own life. Youth is a blunder, manhood a struggle, old age a regret. Does that sound too depressing to you for a Christian to say about himself? Then read again the great apostle to the Gentiles calling himself a bond slave of sin in chapter 7 of his epistle to the Romans when he too was much closer to the end of his life than to its beginning and he had been an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ for 30 years. And then once again read our text this morning, I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Life is serious business. 
There may be great fun in it for a Christian, but it is always serious business. And if anything will make us serious about our life, it's this. I have no doubt that God in Christ will be merciful to me. I have no doubt that he will take my very little for a lot more than it is worth. I know that my sins are forgiven and that I'm going to heaven. I have a great deal of joy in my heart and in my life. But I remember Paul saying that the Christian life is sorrowful as well as always rejoicing. I also know that my Savior will judge my life and will give me what is due me for what I have done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, I know very well how difficult it is for Christians to understand this, all the more if they haven't much thought about it. You and I have been taught to be champions of God's grace, of justification by faith, of the forgiveness of sins. I say champions of those great realities to the backbone. But it is the same Paul and the same John and indeed the same Jesus Christ who teaches us that we too must face a reckoning of our lives. And what are we going to have wanted to do with our daily lives today, tomorrow, the next day? I say, what are we going to want to have done then? Now to be sure, the fear of God's judgment is hardly the only reason for us to strive to put on holiness of life. The Bible gives us a basketful of motivations for living a holy life. I think myself, we are facing a crisis of motivation in the American evangelical church. We've reduced the motivations for living, for living a serious Christian life to but one or perhaps two. We speak as if only love should cause us to strive to work out our salvation or the pursuit of our own happiness. No matter that the Apostle Paul said himself that we should work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. No, something as difficult, something requiring as many great and serious sacrifices as holiness of life needs more than one reason. Different days require different motivations. Love, certainly, we love God because he first loved us. And if we love him, we will keep his commandments. Gratitude is not quite the same thing. And that also is a key motivation in Paul's instruction on living the godly life. In view of God's mercies to you, he says. Present your bodies living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. But there is more. There is the fear of judgment. There is the hope of reward. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. And Paul speaks often in the same way. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. And the Lord himself solemnly reminds us, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And then again and again, we Christians, we followers of Christ, we heirs of eternal life are reminded to obey and serve the Lord, are urged to put our sins to death. Why? 
because as Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God and each of us will give an account of himself to God. Struggle as we must to put on holiness and the fear of the Lord. We have much to encourage us, surely. We cannot despair. God's forgiveness gives us hope that he will not desert us or leave us to our own devices. He everywhere promises to help us as we seek first his kingdom and righteousness. But that only makes the more obvious that we have no excuse not to spend our days striving for so much more than what we have so far obtained, to strain to lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of us. We have something great to do in this life every single day, no matter what we're doing that day. We have something to do that will matter in eternity, will matter forever, in other words. In better days, Christians could took this coming reckoning of their lives more seriously. Speaking of the moral reforms of William Wilberforce and others, one historian writes that the second consideration motivating them after the love of God and Christ was their certainty of the existence of an afterlife of rewards and punishments. If one asks how 19th century English merchants earned the reputation of being the most honest in the world, the answer is because hell and heaven seemed as certain to them as tomorrow's sunrise and the last judgment as real as that week's balance sheet. The young prime minister, William Pitt, once asked Henry Thornton, a member of the Clapham set a sect that included William Wilberforce and other Christian reformers, asked him why he had voted against him in Parliament on that one occasion. Thornton replied, I voted today so that if my master had come again at that moment, I might have been able to give an account of my stewardship. So it was that Jonathan Edwards, as a young man, listened to him, young people, old people as well, as a young man, Edwards resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the next world as I possibly can. Don't hear what I'm not saying. God loves you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and are following him, your next stop is the city with foundations whose builder and maker is God, the heavenly country, the new Jerusalem, we are all of us saved by the election of God, the sacrifice of Christ, and the renewal of our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He who has the Son of God has life. But that does not mean that every Christian life is the same, that every follower of Jesus is as faithful as any other, that some are not holier than others, don't accomplish much more for the kingdom of God than others. And God reminds us again and again that he's keeping a record, that it matters to him and will matter, therefore, in eternity, that we devote our lives to him, that we do what he has commanded us to do, that we serve him with heart and soul and mind. There is much about American history 
that has remained largely hidden, important lessons that have been lost in this way. I read not so long ago a superb and important history of the Korean War, a war most Americans know little about, and I was among them, though my father served in the thick of that war. I learned all manner of things I had not known before, much of which, alas, was not to the credit of my country, its civilian or military leadership, or its young men in the 1950s. I didn't know, did you, that our young men died in great numbers in Korean, North Korean prison camps. They were mistreated, to be sure, but our men died when other POWs didn't. They were mistreated, but so were others. Few South Koreans died. The Turks sent a brigade to Korea as part of the United Nations forces, and they fought bravely. Some of their men, likewise, were also captured. Not a single Turk died in captivity. Though they suffered the same cold, ate the same miserable diet, were in want of the same medicines, and experienced the same brutal mistreatment and neglect that the American POWs did, and many Americans did survive. What made the difference? It didn't seem to be sickness because many who survived had the same illnesses that carried others away. What is more, that wouldn't account for the fact that 50% of the American POWs died and not a single Turk. The explanation provided in the book runs along these lines. The Turk knew who he was. He was a citizen of a backward and brutal civilization that in most respects we would have thought and rightly disgusting. But the Turk knew who he was. He was proud of his nationality, of his religion. He was a fanatically devout Muslim and proud of his fighting reputation. He knew why he was in Korea. He was there to fight, and so he fought. He was used to hardship, and he accepted it. He was a man under authority and accepted that also. The Turks did what their officers told them to do, even in the camps, even after the Chinese commanders had eliminated rank among the POWs in the camp. The Turks still did what their officers told them to do. If a Turk was found being too friendly with his Chinese captors, he was beaten severely by his own countrymen. They would not tolerate disloyalty. Americans at that historical moment were virtually the mirror opposite of the Turks. They didn't know why they were there, and they didn't know who they were. They didn't want to be in Korea, and they were soft. Even the army had coddled them under new orders from the political class. These soldiers had been subjected to virtually no hardship, even in training. Disobedience to orders was rarely punished. And so when the fighting started, the U.S. Army collapsed and retreated in disorder, leaving its equipment behind. The retreating U.S. Army was the second largest supplier 
of the North Korean Army's equipment in the first year of the Korean War. Soldiers ordered to stand and fight simply refused to do so, dropped their weapons, turned, and ran. These were the men who were captured and held in Chinese-run prison camps for three long years. There, too, they refused to obey their officers, refused to help with the care of the sick, even when their doctors pleaded with them to do so. Who are you to tell me what to do? When the Chinese guards told the American GIs that rank was abolished in the camp and now all were equal, many of the GIs welcomed the news. Now no one had to obey anyone else. One NCO who survived, a strong Christian by the name of Schlichter, reported that one American GI whom he was encouraging to eat, however much he disliked the food, replied angrily, my parents never made me do things like this. Strangely, it was the young who died first. Knowing who you are, what your life is about, knowing that you have sacred obligations, knowing that you will have to answer for how you meet them can be the difference between life and death on the battlefield or in a POW cage. But these convictions are just as vital, more vital to human life in general. Do you know who you are? Do you know that your life matters and matters supremely because it matters to God every day of it? Do you know what your obligations are? Do you know that someone who is supremely wonderful cares about what you do every moment of every day, cares so much he's keeping a record. Do you know that the American chaplains in the prison camps died to the last man? They were the only class or group to be completely wiped out. Why? because they were sharing their little bit of food with the starving, because they were working hard when most were lethargic and unresponsive, and because when they got sick, they were refused food or medicine by the Chinese. The Chinese communists feared and hated the Christian faith and showed it no mercy. It was a power they knew they could not control. But unlike so many of the POWs, the chaplains died for something and for someone. The chaplains knew who they were. They knew why, were th why they were there. They knew what they were supposed to do with their lives as long as they had them. Do you see, that's what the doctrine of election does or is supposed to do for a Christian. You're somebody God loved before the world existed. You're someone God chose by name. That's what the cross should do for you as well. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. And this is what the Holy Spirit should do for you. Your body is his temple. And this is what the prospect of the last judgment should do for you. 
Your life matters to God. He's keeping a record of it every hour. And that book, your book, is someday to be opened and read. Eternity. You have something fabulously important to do with your life. Give it back to God in this short stretch of existence to give it back to the almighty and loving obedience and faithful service. People who know that, people who believe that, people who live with that conviction both survive the shocks of this world and make something truly worthwhile of their lives while they are in it. William Wilberforce summed up the power of the great Charles Simeon's ministry by saying simply, Simeon is in earnest. Well, eternity ought to make every one of us earnest. If nothing else, it ought to make us earnest. The world around us does not take Christians or their message seriously. And certainly one reason they don't is because it does not appear to them that we take it seriously. Eternity. Write that on the sidewalk in front of your house. Write it on your doorstep when you leave in the morning. Write it on your desk when you get to work. Write it on your heart every day. Eternity. Someone has wisely said the main thing in life is to keep the main thing in life the main thing in life. Eternity is the main thing in every human life, including yours. Father in heaven, now this grand word written so long ago, write it afresh upon our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.